Thank you, worship team. Uh, Several of you have noticed my haircut. I saw the look of shock in your eyes at how short it was, and I forgive you for that. My wife has been cutting my hair for 21 years, and I'm not sure what I did to her this week, but uh, she cut it really, really short. And at my age, I'm not sure it's going to grow back. So, uh, I already have a square head, so Frank and Lenny, you know, that's kind of got that. Speaking of uh, Frankenstein, there's Frankenstein, there's Dracula, there's the werewolf, and then there's Manasseh, monstrous Manasseh. Unlike uh, arrogant Asa, unreceptive Uzziah, and other kings of Judah who we've been looking at, uh, who started out really well, uh, Manasseh actually right out of the gate is pretty much a monster. He doesn't really have a good start like the other kings did. They started well, ended poorly, but Manasseh, from the very beginning of his reign as king, was a monster. He was a, a real mess. I want to read uh, the R-rated description of the monster movie that was Manasseh's life. Second Chronicles 33. You'll want to turn there, perhaps. Second uh, Chronicles 33. This will be the last in our series on the kings, the King Me series. I'm going to read the first nine verses about Manasseh the monster. Here we go. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished. He also erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, My name will remain in Jerusalem forever. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his children in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, practiced divination and witchcraft, sought omens, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. He took the image he had made and put it in God's temple, of which God had said to David and to his son Solomon, in this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not again make the feet of the Israelites leave the land I assigned to your ancestors. If only they will be careful to do everything I commanded them concerning all the laws, decrees, and regulations given through Moses. But Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray, so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. Like I said, Manasseh was a monster. He was a mess. There's a description in there uh, of his evil. It's not just evil, it's much evil. Manasseh made the other average evil kings look like angels. That's how evil Manasseh was. I mean, think of the most evil people who have lived throughout history. Mussolini, Hitler, Manson. Add 10% and you've got Manasseh. 
And he had three major strikes against him when it comes to evil. The first thing he did, verse 4, is that he, uh, he set up altars to foreign gods in the temple of the Lord. Now, other kings had done something similar. They set up altars to other gods, but they didn't do it in the temple. Manasseh actually set up altars to other gods in the temple of Yahweh the Lord. One of the things he did was he put up Asherah poles in the temple. Asherah was the Canaanite fertility goddess. And he put a symbol of Asherah up in the temple, and that's where uh, people would come and have sex with temple prostitutes. In the temple of God. I said this was R-rated. There's the sex. Here's the violence. Verse 6. Manasseh actually sacrificed his children in the fire to the god Moloch, a Canaanite god. Hideous, monstrous, violent. Now, it could be that it was more politically motivated than religiously motivated. Usually, if somebody was trying to form a political alliance with a more powerful nation, they would adopt that nation's religious practices. And I think that's what's going on here with Manasseh. But it's still just, it's monstrous. And then verse 9 sort of the summary statement for the monster movie. Manasseh led the people of God astray so that they were actually more ungodly than the ungodly nations around them. They made the ungodly nations look good. That's how bad they were. Manasseh basically undid all of the good religious reforms that his father, King Hezekiah, had put in place. King Hezekiah was a godly king. That's Manasseh's dad. So Manasseh had a really good daddy. He's got no excuse for his monstrosity. Now, if I'm God, the way I would respond to Manasseh is with a lightning bolt or a hailstone the size of our piano to fall on top of Manasseh's head. But how does God respond? Look at verse 10. How does God respond to Manasseh's monstrosity? Not with a lightning bolt, not with a hailstone the size of the piano. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. God, in response to Manasseh's monstrosity, extends a hand of mercy, a voice of mercy. And Manasseh is like, I don't want any part of you, God. Manasseh has a chance to reach out for the merciful hand of God while he's drowning in a wretched, miserable life, and he doesn't take the second chance. He just gives God the hand. And then we get to verse 11, which is the verse we've been waiting for. We want Manasseh to get justice. We want him to get what he deserves. That's justice. And here we are in verse 11. Manasseh had a chance for mercy. He didn't take it. Verse 11. 
So the Lord brought against them, the Israelites, the, the Judah, land of Judah, the army commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. They put hooks in the nose of Manasseh. That's what they did with unruly animals, uh, uh, wild beasts. They put hooks in their nose so they could tame them and manage the animal. And now Manasseh is being humiliated, treated like an unruly beast because that's what he really is. And he's subdued with a hook in his nose, humiliated, shackles on his feet, and led to the land of Babylon, far from home, in the unfamiliar. And if he would have only taken the mercy that God was extending in verse 10, he would not be in this mess. I, uh, I really wrestled this week with how we can relate to monstrous Manasseh. It's easy for us to, I think, connect with and relate to arrogant Asa or unreceptive Uzziah and maybe even jerk-faced Jeroboam. But how do we relate to someone like Manasseh? I mean, none of us could imagine ever harming our kids, sacrificing our children in fire like Manasseh did. None of us would do that. And none of us would ever put up a a symbol of sexual idolatry in the church, like put a pornographic poster next to the organ. None of us would do that. So how can we relate to Manasseh? Here's how. All of us, I suspect, have a capacity to, like Manasseh, not receive the mercy of God when it comes to us in the moment. Now, maybe for some of us, the reason why we can't receive the mercy of God is like it was for Manasseh. We just have a spirit of defiance. (laughs) And when the mercy of God comes in the midst of our monstrosity, we say, no thanks. I don't want your mercy. Get out of my face, God. I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do it, and don't stop me. But I think for most of us, it's not a spirit of defiance that keeps us from grabbing a hold of the merciful hand of God when it comes to us. I think it's something else. I think it's the nose hook of past regret and present shame that keeps us from grabbing hold of the merciful hand of God when it comes to us. That's what I think it is. Some of us in this room are being led around by a nose hook of regret and shame that keeps us from being fully free by the mercy of God. Let me, let me put the question this way. What have you done or not done that you can't forgive yourself for? I think some of us are walking around with a Second Chronicles 33 plastered all over us. We view ourselves, we think others view us, and we think God views us through the lens of our Second Chronicles 33, all of the worst things we've ever done. The list. 
failures, regrets, sin, shame, struggles. Could you imagine walking around with a t-shirt that listed all of your worst qualities, all of your past regrets, all of your present shame? Could you imagine that? Some of you are doing that, I suspect. I've been around the church long enough to know, and I've been a Christian long enough to know, that if we're not careful, we can miss out on the full mercy of God because we're being led by a nose hook of regret and shame, taking us to Babylon's we do not want to go. And maybe on your shirt it's, I messed up my marriage. I disappointed my kids. I looked at porn again. I got high again. I got drunk again. I gossiped again. I allowed legalism and judgmentalism to make me harsh when I should have showed grace. I was overcome by anger. I dropped out of school. I got fired from that job. I didn't share the love of Christ with my best friend before she died. Regret and shame all over us. For some of us, our, the cup of our lives is overflowing with shame and regret that is making us drown. And we find ourselves unable to fully grab hold. I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm just saying some of us are not able to fully grab hold of the mercy of God that covers our regret and shame entirely. And we are drowning. And we are floundering. You know someone like that? I do. She was uh, a really great wife and mother. And then uh, in her mid-30s, she had what she called a nervous breakdown. She had spent a lot of her life trying to save her alcoholic father, and then she married a guy who was a drug addict and tried to save him. And after a while, she just, she drowned. And she started using drugs and came undone fast. And the regrets began to pile up. She was a good mom for a time, but then when she started using, she neglected her children, and she made all sorts of bad decisions then she even uh, got caught shoplifting to support her drug habit. And it was either jail or rehab. And she chose rehab. And there in rehab, she found Jesus. Or Jesus found her. I'm not sure how it works. And she became a Christian. And God began to put her life back together again. But, but... She just could never fully grasp for herself the mercy of God. Not saying she wasn't saved or she wasn't forgiven. She could extend mercy to people. She would always tell people about the mercy of God for them, but she couldn't receive it for herself, and she floundered spiritually up and down, up and down, up and down. She was never fully free. And she died at the age of 55 with a hook in her nose of regret and shame that Christ came to undo. 
And it's too late for my mom. But it's not too late for you. Well, what's going to happen with Manasseh? Let's pick up the story in verse 12. He has, he's getting justice, what he deserved. What's he going to do with that? Verse 12, look at it. In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. Wow. <laughs> Unlike the other kings we've looked at in this King Me series, who couldn't humble themselves when confronted Manasseh has one redeeming quality, just one. (laughs) When faced with that kind of distress, he found the grace to humble himself and seek the favor of God in the midst of his monstrosity and the justice he was experiencing because of it. But he already had his chance. God already gave him one chance. You remember verse 10? He spoke to Manasseh. Manasseh was like, "Uh uh-uh. How will God respond to this Manasseh who didn't hear his voice? Will God hear Manasseh's? Verse 13. How does God respond? And when Manasseh prayed to God, the Lord was moved by his entreaty, moved by mercy, and listened to his plea. So he brought Manasseh back to Jerusalem, back to his kingdom, and then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. How did Manasseh know that God was God? Not through justice, but through mercy. That's how. Justice is getting what we deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. And we want God to hit Manasseh with justice, a hailstone, a lightning bolt. But God shows mercy. Not only that, but he shows grace. He actually not only forgives Manasseh for his monstrosity, he actually brings Manasseh back to Jerusalem and reestablishes him as king. My word, mercy. And mercy like that will change a person. In my first year of marriage, uh, when I was still a newlywed, a clueless newlywed male, actually after 21 years, I'm still a clueless newlywed male. So first year of marriage and uh, maybe four or five months in, and it was my day off, and so Amy and I agreed that, you know, we'd eat dinner at 6. She would come home at 3 o'clock after teaching kindergarten and first grade. She, she taught both combined in a small Christian school and said, you know, I'll come home. I'll cook dinner. I, she's, you know, she said, go fishing, and I went fishing. That's my hobby. And uh, I, we agreed I'd be back at 6 for, for the meal. Well, it's 5.30, and I'm fly fishing in the stream, and the fish are starting to bite at 5.30. I couldn't leave the stream while the fish were biting. She'll understand. I don't even know if we had a cell phone at that point. It was 1998. I don't remember. I don't think we had a cell phone yet. And so I couldn't call her, but I was catching fish, and she would understand. And by golly, I'm a grown man. I can do what I want. So I'm fishing, and it's about 7 o'clock. The fish are still biting, 7.30, 7.45. I said, I've got to get out of the water now. So I head home. Two hours late, it's 8 o'clock. 
I told her I'd be home at 6. And I walk into the apartment, and there's Amy with a look of uh, worry on her face. And she says, you know, hon, where were you? I was worried. And I just got super defensive and started to say something like, what do you mean, where was I? I was fishing. I'm 26 years old. I can do what I want. I'm a grown man. I love my hobbies. Don't try to take my hobbies from me, that kind of thing, you know. She was the victim, but I played like I was. And she just said, you know, I was worried about you. Women, stop looking at me so angry, please, okay? (laughs) This was 21 years ago. Let up. She said, I was just worried about you. And I said, well, uh, uh, I'm leaving. I'm leaving. I'm going out. So I I left, stormed out of the house, went around driving for an hour, uh, thinking of all the reasons why I was right. And uh, came home about 9 o'clock now. Dinner was ruined. I had hurt her feelings. I knew it. I was acting like a doofus. I knew it. But I wasn't going to admit it at that point. Kind of, maybe, sort of. We'll see. So I parked the car at 9 o'clock. I head up the steps of our apartment. We kind of lived upstairs. And walking up the steps, I could see all around uh, our deck railing were candles that she had lit. I came up a little further, and I saw on the deck, uh, on our dining room deck table, uh, a new, fresh layout of food that she had prepared. Second meal she's prepared today. (laughs) And then there was Amy, uh, with a look of grace and mercy on her face, not anger or disgust. Decked out, looking radiant in what I will call pajamas but they were in pajamas. <laughs> I deserved justice. I deserved a cold shoulder, screaming in my face, or the silent treatment, or a locked door. I didn't get justice. I got mercy. I got grace. And that kind of mercy and grace made me want to love her more, not less. Like, I didn't think to myself, because Amy's going to forgive me when I act like a doofus, I'm just going to keep acting like a doofus. It's not what I did. I never wanted to be a doofus again when I encountered that kind of mercy. Now, I have been, but I've tried hard not to be. You see, mercy will change a person. Mercy transforms our monstrosity. It happened to Manasseh, too. Look at his story. After he encountered the mercy of God, verses 14 to 16, look at the change in Manasseh. He rebuilt the outer wall. He stationed military commanders, so he, got, he did his job, and then, and then he came on fire for God. Look at verse 15. He got rid of the foreign gods, removed the images from the temple. He restored the altar of the Lord. He sacrificed fellowship and thank offerings. And then in verse 17, uh, uh, verse 16 still, sorry, he told Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Something happened to Manasseh. See, mercy will transform monstrosity. It always will. Perhaps the most incredible grace and mercy in Manasseh's life is if you turn to the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, that long list of names that we kind of skim over, I do, there in the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, is monstrous Manasseh, an ancestor of Jesus. There's also unreceptive Uzziah and arrogant Asa. Mercy. 
If you find yourself locked in a prison of your own making, led around by a nose hook of past regret and present shame, realize that if God can show mercy to monstrous Manasseh, Mr. Much Evil, probably the most evil king of Judah, then guess what? God's mercy is available to you too. No matter what you've done. It's gospel math, really. A positive plus a negative equals zero. God's magnificent mercy plus Manasseh's monstrosity equals zero. Clean slate. Fresh start. New beginning. Who do you think you are? If God can forgive you, who do you think you are not to forgive yourself? You didn't die for you. Jesus did. And if Jesus Christ says enough already with the wallowing in your past regret and present shame, then in the words of Jesus, it is finished. (laughs) Throw yourself on the mercy of God and you will be fully free. And you will see his mercy transform your monstrosity into something beautiful. I remember when I wrote my dissertation, doctoral dissertation, I handed it in to the editor. And this professional editor handed it back to me, blood red, dripping with blood, we call that. Red ink all over the place. Every single grammatical or spelling error was marked, underlined, or circled with a red pen. Talk about humiliation and shame. My goodness. The pages of Scripture are dripping with blood red too. The blood of Christ, which covers all of our sin and shame and grammatical errors. All over the pages of Scripture is the mercy of God. All over the place. God is gracious and compassionate slow to anger, abounding in mercy. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love for us, even while we were dead in sin, has made us alive together with Christ. Mercy. Mercy. The proof that we fully received the mercy of God, that we've grabbed the mercy fully and we are fully free, the proof that we've grabbed the mercy of God is that we become mercy givers. That is, We extend the mercy we've received to those who are still stuck with a nose ring, led to places of regret and shame. 
I fell in love as I studied Manasseh this week. I fell in love with the mercy of God all over again. It was good for me. And I remembered where I was before his mercy found me. And that was good. Because now I get to sit at the banquet, the all-you-can-eat sirloin stockade buffet of his mercy. And how dare I feast on the buffet and keep everybody out of the feeding trough? Keep the buffet to myself. So while I was falling in love with the mercy of God for me all over again, I realized with some urgency that there are people all around us, all around us, who are being led by a hook in their nose of regret and shame to Babylon's that will kill them. Lifeless living. If I had a cure for cancer or AIDS, I would shout it from the rooftop. We have a cure for life's greatest ailments, loneliness, depression, lifeless living. And it's the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. How can we not share that? So we're doing this October Friend Month. This is a chance for us to just let other people in on the buffet. (laughs) That's all. To invite family, friends, coworkers, neighbors, classmates, teammates, to feast on the mercy of God for them. So we're designing these services, shorter sermons, I promise, um, focused on the simple love of Jesus. Can Jesus really love me? Can Jesus really heal me? Can Can Jesus really forgive me? Can Jesus really transform me? Those are the four weeks of October. Basic stuff about Jesus. And I promise you every week, we will share as clearly and graciously and lovingly the good news of God's love in Christ. All we have to do is invite people to the buffet. That's it. The rest is up to God. Imagine if just 100 of us out of 300, 100 of us invited five people to the buffet of God's mercy. That'd be 500 people. And imagine that just... 20% of them came in October, 200. And imagine that of those 200, a quarter of them, 25%, 50 people, crossed the line of faith in Jesus Christ. 50 new names written down in glory. And imagine that of those 50, half of them stood up on October 27th and got baptized and declared publicly, I belong to Jesus and he belongs to me. Imagine. (laughs) And that's if just 100 of us invite five five people. Imagine if 300 of us invite five people. That's 1,500. That math is too big for me. I'm not going to try it. The way I want to close this service, first of all, I hope you sense the mercy of God for you. But mercy grabbers are mercy givers. So what I want us to do, uh, just spend maybe 30, 60 seconds or whatever, about a minute, writing down the names of people you love whom you will invite to October Friend Month. There's pieces of paper at the end of each pew. If you can't get one, use one of the bulletin inserts. Uh, Write down the names of people you will invite to October Friend Month. And then snap a picture of it or make two lists. 
because after you're done writing those names, the names that God brings to mind, I'm going to invite you during this last song to come to the altar and give those family members, those friends, offer them to God. And over the course of the next few weeks and even through October, we're going to pray for all of those names. In fact, every Saturday in October from 6 to 7 o'clock here in the sanctuary, we're going to pray over those names. I hope you'll join the pastors as we pray. Uh, There'll be some guidance, but we're just going to storm the gates and pray for those people. We're going to fast as well as a pastoral staff. I haven't told them that yet, so they don't know. I suppose they know now. So let's take a minute. I'll shut up and just listen, listen to God. Let God have a minute and press upon you names and faces of people. You can invite the friend month. One of the last things Jesus said, uh, at least in the Matthew's gospel, so it's pretty important, are these words. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. You are sent.